welcome to this week's episode of the Arts Hub Show. all things art, arts news and music. We have now entered March, it's the 5th of March, it's one minute past two on Sunday and yeah, I'm here for the next couple hours, so sit back, get a cup of tea, relax and enjoy. So in this show, the first half is... uh, occupied by the artwork of the week um, which I will be announcing after the introduction. Um, We then have a new segment which I've been introducing the last couple times uh, opening the show called the On The Hour 3-in-1 Story Through Song Extravaganza Um, so you've got that to look forward to around uh, 3 o'clock and then the final hour we will delve into some local arts news, arts happening and also worldwide international stuff. All very exciting, so stay tuned.
And that was Tapi Tsikaras with Khulra and uh, with, if you recognise the lead vocal, was in fact Bjork. Um, it's from 1982, a really cool punk band uh, around the time that she was doing stuff with the band Spit and Snot. So all very exciting. If you liked what you heard, I definitely recommend pop onto YouTube and have a little look at the video. It's really cool seeing her perform in her early days. But yes, without further ado, here we are. We're in the Arts Hub show. It's the 5th of March and it's six minutes past two. Um, So let's get started with the artwork of the week. The artwork of the week this week is Three Perfumes from 1912 by Margaret MacDonald Macintosh. So we're transporting all the way to Glasgow, the early 19, early 20th century Glasgow, um, Art Nouveau, turn of the century, fin de siècle, uh, siècle <laughs> all of that really exciting, juicy stuff. Um, and Margaret MacDonald Macintosh was uh, a key figure in Glasgow at the time, producing absolutely gorgeous watercolour works on vellum and that is what the three perfumes from 1912 is it's a watercolour work on vellum and it has a lot of really interesting inspiration from art nouveau which was happening at this time around europe uh, but also um, folklore and it looks back to um, great scottish folklore roots and it's uh, reviving it so yeah really nice uh, work of art and I also thought it'd be great to to have this work of art because there's a lot of um, floral uh, motifs going on and um, Art Nouveau as a movement in general is all about rebirth, new life, fresh, you know, springy energy and we have in fact entered spring which I am just absolutely That's a bit random, but I do think it's necessary. Spring is here, and I couldn't be more happy. The daffodils are poking their heads out. Edinburgh is slowly getting more and more green. Thank the Lord. I think um, the grey, gloomy, cold winter has maybe finally passed. Um, so, yeah, I thought let's celebrate with Margaret MacDonald Macintosh, the three perfumes from 1912. And on that note, here's a little tune called First Snow.
And that was the enchanting sound of First Snow by Mitsuni. So if you've just tuned in, welcome to the Arts Hub show. I'm Esme, I'm here for the next couple hours. And right now we're discussing the artwork of the week, which is The Three Perfumes from 1912 by Margaret MacDonald Macintosh. So we are now in Glasgow from the early 20th century. And what a time to be alive. It was a very big creative hub at the time. The, the Glasgow School of Art had just been revamped, so to speak, and... Um, Things were getting a bit more experimental and uh, lots of very interesting art was being produced with uh, Margaret being one of the, um, being at the forefront of it all. So who is this person? Well, she was born near Wolverhampton and uh, settled in Glasgow in the late 1880s. Um, She's actually very much... Uh, it, throughout her life, um, her work is intertwined with her sisters, and they did a lot of things together. They didn't spend most of their life together, and the group in which formed in Glasgow at this time was uh, had Margaret and her sister Frances at the forefront together, hand in hand. So that's quite nice. And um, they both, <coughs> oh, excuse me, they both enrolled at Glasgow School of Art. Um, uh, yeah, in the late 1880s, and this is where they met Charles Rennie Mackintosh and James Herbert McNair. So this is the four key figures um, of this Glasgow uh, school of art, um, the Glasgow style, which it soon became. But um, by the mid-1980s, the sisters had established a studio, and they soon began to collaborate with Mackintosh and McNair. And uh, the four artists quickly cemented uh, international reputations. Uh, Francis MacDonald and McNair, in fact, married in 1899. And then Mackintosh and Margaret MacDonald married in 1900. So two married couples working as a whole, um, as a group. Um, quite a rare thing to occur. And uh, it was <clears throat> like very unusual and it had a lot of um, styles uh, mixed in together. They worked in various mediums. It wasn't just watercolour and vellum, like the three perfumes. It was also architecture design, um, interior design, and uh, metalwork. Frances MacDonald, uh, Margaret's sister, was really into her metal. Um, <clears throat> but the wife, um, the um, husband of Margaret was Charles Rennie Mackintosh and if you've been around Glasgow I mean his motifs visual motifs and uh, interior design and architectural designs are all over the place so Charles Rennie Mackintosh is very well known and Margaret tends to be a little bit in his shadow but this really wasn't the case at the time I mean Charles actually said that um I had the talent, but she has the genius. So he really looked up to her and really supported her throughout her life. And it was definitely not, uh, there was no power dynamic there. They were both great artists in their own right. Um, but yeah, Charles Rennie Mackintosh, the great Scottish architect and designer, um, they both worked together and they were the two pioneers of this Glasgow style, this unique blending of ancient Celtic design and symbolism with Art Nouveau and uh, an elegant stylization of foliate forms which derived from nature. So a lot of the work is all just centered around the natural world and also, yeah, Celtic 
ancient Celtic motifs and uh, folklore, which I find really fascinating. They're, they're uprooting and reviving um, old Scottish folklore and making it fresh and modern and relevant, which is pretty cool. But yes, um, on that note, I want to play another song. This is Slow Walk and Talk, part two, by the Wildflowers. Talk Part 2 by The Wildflowers. So, if you've just tuned in, hello, this is the Arts Hub Show, and we are discussing the artwork of the week, which is The Three Perfumes by Margaret MacDonald Macintosh from 1912. So, who is this artist? Why is she relevant? And uh, what is happening at the time? What is happening in the early 20th century Glasgow scene slash throughout Europe? Well, she and her partner 
Rennie Macintosh, uh, Charles Rennie Macintosh, were the pioneers of something called the Glasgow style, which is still very relevant today and seen and memorialised throughout Scotland. So it was a very big deal. Um, it was labelled this in the 1930s, but this is what they were, and it was um, a group of people. So it was classified into a group because of similar styles of work and also the intimate relationships with one another. So um, as I'd said earlier, Margaret had a sister called Frances and these two sisters went to the Glasgow School of Art and um, they met these two brothers and um, the two brothers, oh sorry, not the two brothers, what am I going on about? These two men who were really close friends, <laughs> and James Herbert McNair, Charles Rennie McIntosh, and Margaret MacDonald, Frances MacDonald, they were the two sisters. These were just two guys who went to architectural school together, they travelled around Europe, did a bit of watercolouring in France, so they were very tight. And the two girls, um, who were from a middle-class family, they, they could afford artistic training, so they um, studied and went to school. Um, they were very privileged to have been able to do that at the time, um, but they ended up meeting these two guys, and they became the Glasgow Four. As I'd said, um, Frances MacDonald married James Herbert McNair, and Margaret MacDonald married James, uh, Charles... Rennie Macintosh, and this created a group of four artists all working together, all influencing one another, creating really interesting, fresh artwork which was reviving old Celtic ancient design and folklore, Scottish folklore, and also um, tapping into and uh, sort of creating a discourse with the Art Nouveau style, which was basically flooding Europe at this time. So these four, um, how did they become the Glasgow Four? Well, they were eventually, um, after being at the same school, um, put together into an exhibition. And it was in this exhibition that um, they became close friends and soon relationships formed. And all of their artwork had a similar dialogue. It spoke to one another very well and blended together. And if you go online and you search the Glasgow Four, you can find artworks in which they've all collaborated and created artworks, which um, you can see everyone's different, unique styles all put into one. And it's it's very beautiful, really cool. Um, <laughs> But the um, the four is usually, uh, as a collective, more important than the individual. Although Margaret and um, uh, Rennie Macintosh were uh, maybe as individuals slightly more relevant, just because Charles Rennie Macintosh was so famous from his architecture and interior design and things like that, um, and uh, Margaret with her watercolors. So. They did classify their own unique styles, but it was the Glasgow Four which made its statement and uh, got um, people talking. So, yeah, this was the group that Margaret is part of. Um, and uh, it's important to think of that context and that sort of intense space which they were working in as a, as a close-knit four, um, two sisters and then their husbands. Um, the British press didn't like them at all. Um, their their work was actually named the the spook, the spook school in the press. So the press 
wasn't a fan. Um, it was a nickname for the, for the spook school and their work was very ghoul-like. If you go online and you have a look at the three perfumes from 1912, you can see where this is coming from. They tended to elongate things and twist them and particularly human forms would be elongated and uh, contorted and things would start looking a bit alien and uh, especially the representation of women within Margaret and Francis's work. Um, they were doing things rather unorthodox and the press were not a fan, not a fan at all. Um, but on that note, I want to play a really cool folk song. This is called Unearthed. I thought it linked really nicely to the three perfumes, a really natural, fresh piece of work. And um, yeah, this is actually a lockdown piece. This, this piece was written in lockdown. So yeah, more about it after you've listened to it. Here we go, Unearthed.
Every so often, you're on earth, my mannerism, relics of the past, uncovered on accident and up for interpretation. The strangest winds blow the dirt off that certain high road or inflection. Connor Mallon, what a tune. Um, Connor Mallon is a Irish Yulian um, U- pipe player. I don't know precisely how to pronounce that, but um, <clears throat> the Yulian pipe is a really interesting traditional Irish instrument, and he is at the forefront of a new movement of Irish piping. And um, he played and wrote that song in the lockdown 2020 lockdown i'm pretty sure and he's actually releasing an album in may so if you liked what you heard stay tuned i'm pretty sure the album will be called unearthed um yeah which is all very exciting so that's corner melon um but yeah moving back towards the artwork the artwork of the week um the artwork of the week is the three perfumes from 1912 margaret mcdonald mackintosh an artist who um whose work really embodies the energy and vigor of uh, le fim de siècle and all that comes with it this turn of the century energy and um this rebirth which occurred when the 20th century came about. Um, <clears throat> she was there and she created such gorgeous watercolour works. They're my absolute favourite works of hers are the watercolour on vellum. And that's what the three perfumes is. And it's very luminous. And uh, it's almost as if you can smell perfume coming out of, of the artwork. It's very multi-sensory and there's... It, it has so much depth to it um, it taps into all the senses and that's also a quality of of art nouveau and um this 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 style of work but what is what is art nouveau um let's have a little chat about art nouveau because it is very relevant to the work of margaret and um the glasgow four and especially anyone working around this time will be feeling <clears throat> the waves and the the wave of art nouveau tapping into them so it emerged in Europe around 1890 to 1910. So it was literally right on the bridge. Um, it bridged across the two centuries, literally 1890 to 1910. So symmetrical. Um, not that art movements are that precise, but that is roughly the time in which it came about and then died. And uh, it was a short-lived movement, but it definitely had a lot of impact. So. Um, 
Visually, what does Art Nouveau have or possess? Um, what well use is it uses linear plant-like forms, which tend to draw from science or nature, geometric symmetry, and particularly mythical history and folklore, um, which is very, you know, very nice because Scotland has the best folklore history and culture. So um, Scottish Art Nouveau tends to tap into old folkloric ideas and um, stories and things and uh, visual motifs which uh, come back and uh, create a new fresh a new fresh um, perspective of those old stories which is lovely but um, there's a lot of debate of whether Art Nouveau should be regarded as um, the death knell of the 19th century or the harbinger of the 20th is it is it the, the does it mark does this art movement mark sort of a death and a, and a death of a past and a, and a past tradition and culture or is it more of a rebirth um, I personally think it's definitely a rebirth because the visual motifs which come back again and again in Art Nouveau is always life and growth nature um, a lot of uh, you know plant like forms and um, it's very it's, it's definitely not a death that they're portraying. It's not a dingy art movement or aesthetic. Because, um, uh, yeah, so despite having begun in the 19th century, its aesthetic qualities, associations with nature and modernity, rejection of revivalism and transnational qualities all combine this form, um, combine this to form an aesthetic, which definitely is a rebirth. Um, Art Nouveau was the first movement to stylistically protest revivalism, which is what was swamping Europe in the 19th century. So for a bit more context, um, there was such a need for a new aesthetic because all through throughout Europe, what they were doing was just trying to revive Greek architecture, Roman architecture, all these old things that have just come back again and again, they're just trying to revive it, the Gothic revival, this revival, and everything was just looking, it was almost a bit kitsch because it wasn't a genuine Gothic building or a genuine Greek, you know, building, but they were trying to copy it and make it look as though it was, and it, there was something very tacky about that during the 19th century, which people did, weren't a huge fan of. They were trying to hold on to a past, and a past aesthetic, which really needed to just stay in the past. So when Art Nouveau came about, it was a chance to <clears throat> restyle just society in general, um, architecture, interior, art, furniture, way of living, everything. It comes under the umbrella. It's, it's, a, it's the umbrella of everything. So it wasn't just paintings and watercolors like the artwork of the week that we have here. It's also architecture, interior design, uh, how they plan the inside of buildings, how they decorate the walls, just j how people are living is they want to change the aesthetic and therefore hopefully change society and the way it functions as a whole. Um, industrialization was huge, but it was now time to modernize and to get past that and create a whole new way of living. So Art Nouveau gave this uh, chance it gave people a chance to, to really do this and um, it really symbolizes the psychological condition of the age one that was fraught fraught with anxious energy it was um, very embodied in the classic twist and pull 
of the whiplash line, which was um, a line that came back again and again, a motif throughout Art Nouveau work. Um, asymmetry, cast iron aesthetic, um, you name it. The style was inspired by the very beginnings of life. Um, reproduction, biological motifs, anatomy, plant structures. Um, Art Nouveau becomes a style which lived in the speed and terror of a new world while hankering after the mystical depth of the past. Ooh, things are getting pretty mystical. Um, and uh, the word vitality really sums up um, <clears throat> all works of Art Nouveau because they possess such a surging internal energy. And I think this is because of um, just the curvilinear emphasis. <laughs> the, you know, it was dubbed with names such as tapeworm style, noodle style, the dandy style, the squirm. All of these were names that Art Nouveau was dubbed with because it was seen as kind of untraditional, not really academic enough. Um, and you could probably see that when you're looking at the artwork of the week here with th the three perfumes. It's quite illustrative and it kind of pushes away from the classical real realism, you know, using oils and adding all sorts of illusionist, illusionistic depth and things. It's more illustrative and the focus is more on aesthetic rather than maybe other things. So it becomes very... Um, criticized <laughs> so to speak <laughs> but um it was also a transnational style so art nouveau was everywhere i mean here we're talking about scottish art nouveau but it was it was all over the place and it really just provided a, a launch pad for various nations to um, regenerate their national architectural style without historical baggage and not just architecture I mean everything um, interior design furniture artwork sculpture they wanted to create a new aesthetic for their societies which wasn't um, yeah which was without the historical baggage of like everything else that had gone on they wanted something fresh and this all goes into the this energy of the turn of the century um, it became uh, national styles, actually, in many countries. Again, it was short-lived, but it was a national style in Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands, Hungary, Austria. Um, and uh, a really interesting quote by Aaron Arrowsmith is, the present age is distinguished from all others in having no style it can properly call its own. So it was a time of confusion and people trying to get to grips with what their cultural identities were um, after the chaos and carnage of the 19th century industrialization and all, all that all that stuff so yeah before I bite your ear off much longer um, that was just a bit of an insight into the, the context of Margaret Macdonald um, Macintosh's art and the the culture she was working in and the Art Nouveau element, which was a key part of her work. So, yeah, without further ado, here's another tune. Um, ooh, what should I play? Okay, on the, uh, ah, I'll play this actually. This is At Lake Marine, a very beautiful song.
Lake Marine by The Innocence Mission. What a beautiful song. Um, yeah, so if you're thinking what's going on, just tuned in. Um, I'm Esme, I'm here until four o'clock, and we're right now discussing the artwork of the week, um, which is The Three Perfumes from 1912 by Margaret MacDonald Macintosh. Um, yeah, so we've, t- we've spoken a bit about her life and her time in Glasgow, her marriage to Charles Rennie Mackintosh, who was um, a very famous Scottish architect and designer, and also the Glasgow Four, which was the key, the glue, um, the the glue of the of the of the Glasgow style. Um, and we also have been talking about Art Nouveau and the context um, of of the time which she was working and what that meant and what Art Nouveau meant and it was uh, the culture and the, the, the feel of the time the <clears throat> which was very yearning for something fresh and new, a rebirth um, but now I want to talk a bit about the artwork itself and actually the materials um, which have been used which was watercolour on vellum and um, vellum is a very interesting choice to use here because usually there'd be, you'd use a canvas or paper but uh, Margaret's decided to use vellum and that is a core reason to, to why this artwork has the aesthetic effect that it does. Um, the luminous or the luminosity of the artwork, this comes from this vellum or calf skin that's been mounted on artist board. Um, the translucency of watercolour and ink um, uh, on the shiny surface of the vellum, uh, it, it glows through. So because she's using watercolour, the vellum, which is also a bit translucent, it starts to glow through the watercolour and it creates a very eerie and ghostly feel. And it's really cool. I mean, this is an aesthetic which I think is stunning. It's, I mean, I'd love to see this work in, in the flesh um, the colours are just popping out of there. It create it almost, it adds to the depth completely. It makes it look 3D and um, it creates all sorts of optical illusions in a way because it makes the artwork look as though it's moving and the textures are accentuated and it just creates an, a very, very beautiful finish. And um, I wonder if the use of vellum was maybe... Um, due to the folklore-inspired part of, of, of this work, and especially of the Glasgow style, um, Scotland has some of the most rich, the, the richest folklore ever um, in history. It's got such rich, you know, Celtic ancient roots. Um, and I wonder if using vellum was maybe sort of a re- a revamp, a revamping uh, call to the past, because of course vellum was what was used for ancient manuscripts, ancient storytelling um, uh, in the medieval times, and it may, maybe this is what she was doing. She was referencing old medieval manuscripts and uh, the old stories, which um, which tells of the folklore of Scotland. I, I don't know, but. The, the sacred Scottish art of the past being re, 
revigored <laughs> with the vellum. I don't know, but I, I think it's a really interesting choice. Um, vellum wasn't used much around that time. Um, but yeah, and also the, the technique. So vellum is not, it's non-absorbent. So you have to stain the vellum before you paint over it. And this can be done by just sort of uh, dabbing like dabbing marks, like dabbing clumps of paint using a sponge or or swiping it and creating lines. But you can see that um, underneath, if you look at the artwork, you can see these blotches of background color, which has been applied before the intricate painting of the three women that are the central uh, focus of the artwork. So the, you, having to stain the vellum in order to paint over it again creates, adds to this depth and the texture and just makes makes an artwork which which is very layered um, and I, I really just love the contrasts of mark making and um, textures here that this vellum encourages and produces it's uh, very stunning yeah so on that note I'm going to play another tune mm, if I can decide what tune to play that is hmm hmm Okay. Yes, I'm going to play um, Scarborough Fair. Here we go. A very eerie rendition. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley Cedrals, Mary and Parsley, Cedro, 
that just absolutely beautiful and mesmerizing that was a rendition of scarborough fair which came out two weeks ago um i'm just gonna preemptively apologize because i i'm not great at pronouncing irish names but this is seamus and keomi we flat i think but they are this absolutely stunning rendition and it came out two weeks ago so yeah definitely give them a bit of hype, listen to them. They're very talented. And as a, I thought that went really nicely with our discussion on vellum and the ghostly and eerie effect that the vellum produces in the artwork of the week, Three Perfumes from 1912. So I now want to talk very briefly about just being a woman artist, an artist in during this time. And again, a bit contextualize the the culture that Margaret Macdonald Macintosh was working in and what was going on. So this is a quote by John Ruskin from 1865, a bit before um, Margaret and Francis started working at Glasgow School of Art in the late 80s or early 1880s, but um, nonetheless relevant and uh, definitely um, uh, the opinion of many people at the time. So this is John Ruskin. Man's power is active, progressive, defensive. He is eminently the the doer. His intellect is for speculation and invention, his energy for adventure, for war, for conquest. Woman's power is for rule, not for battle, and her intellect is not for invention or creation, but for sweet ordering, arrangement and decision. Her function is praise, and by her office and place she is protected from all danger and temptation. And that was the opinion of John Ruskin, a very famous art critic from 1865, which is not that uh, much before um, when Margaret MacDonald and Frances MacDonald moved to Glasgow School of Art and started working and becoming pioneers of an entire art movement. So this is the culture they were living in, um, a culture which even could arguably be the opinion that people have today, this opinion that men are active and they do things, women sit at home and they praise and they uh, order things and um, tell people what to do in the household. That's kind of where the, their roles are based. Um, and particularly in the art world, um, women's art has, I mean, it's so, it is like scarily recently. I mean, this is only, what, like a, a little bit over a hundred years ago and a hundred years in the grand scheme of things isn't that long. And the uh, art of women was not respected. They did embroidery and uh, textiles work, which is 
that what women tended to do was seen as sweet ordering and arrangement of art that was only being made so it could help decorate the home. It wasn't art in itself, art in its own right. It was craft. And this whole conversation around craft and art and where they overlap, it all goes down to to gender and women and the history of women's art, really, um, and their place in the art world. Um, But um, the thing that was going on in Glasgow at the time, the Glasgow School of Art, it actually was being re... Um, it was having a sort of rebirth and it started encouraging all students to do crafts and not only do textiles and embroidery and um, metal work or whatever, all these practical crafts, but they were actually regarding these crafts as art in its own right and they started being very vocal about how these works uh, all these mediums of working was actually um art and uh, should be done by everyone and that's what was happening in glasgow but it was still hard for women at the time because when i mean earlier in the 19th century if you're a woman artist and you produced art as soon as you married the studio actually belonged to your husband and all of your paintings became your husband's and the money earned from your paintings were still then belonging to your husbands. So everything you were doing in regards to art and being an artist was now your husbands. And it gets worse because throughout history, what has happened is men have married women who were artists. And then as soon as they married them, then used their name on the canvas because they've married and actually taken ownership of their wives art as their own so a lot of forgery and uh, it starts to get a bit messy and I think this is also a big reason as to why women's artwork without history or like there's an absence there's a massive hole there's a massive absence of, of female artists and I think it's this is one of the main reasons for it they didn't have the studio space or the studio space was fu- you know, given to the husband for whatever he wanted it to be used for, or the husbands were taking the artwork and taking it for themselves to sell, to make money, or even worse, putting their own name on the artwork and pretending it was theirs. So it really complicates history and it really um, disrupts the history of female art. And um, it's also feeds into this whole, uh, the history of the, the male artistic genius this this whole thing that was going on and um throughout history this uh art history and uh, this absence of women in that space um of you know being sort of an artistic genius and it's um yeah I think it's a, it's a conversation that needs having and Margaret Macdonald however was someone who didn't let this um get in the way and she did in fact marry someone who was incredibly supportive uh, Charles Rennie Mackintosh was a very supportive husband and he actually said that he was the talent but she was the genius and he said his whole life that she was an artistic genius in her own right and she was incredibly talented and as a, as a duo they were a powerhouse um, but there is an issue because as soon as 
Macintosh's health started deteriorating, Margaret then began nursing him, and so very few works were actually produced after 1914. So that is two years after this artwork, the three perfumes from 1912. She slowly started creating no artwork because she had the pressure of nursing her husband. And an even more tragic story was that Frances, her sister, who was also part of the Glasgow Fall, when she married um, McNair, um, she, he wasn't a fan of her. He wasn't as supportive as, as Macintosh. He didn't want her to be creating art. He wanted her to have children and she didn't want to have children. So when she did inevitably in the end have children, unfortunately she, unfortunately she did take her own life. And when she passed away, McNair destroyed all of her diaries, her illustrations, her sketchbooks, and many of her key works. And it's one of the biggest tragedies in the art world here in Scotland that has ever happened. I mean, he destroyed it all, who knows why? Um, jealousy, sadness, grief, who knows? But it, it has a, it's, it's a massive tragedy. So Francis MacDonald, who was an absolutely exquisite artist, um, there aren't any records of a lot of her work. And it's... Um, very unfortunate. The records of her work which are out there though, um, you can see them and a lot of her works still survive, but there's such a big hole in that gap. So yeah. Um, so I'm now going to play one more song. We're a little bit over schedule, but that's fine. I'm just going to play one more song and then we're going to have a little visual analysis and then we'll delve into our On The Hour 3 and 1. So... <laughs> Cause 
and that was Impotence by the Wildflowers. So I'm now going to do a little visual analysis, a little description of the artwork of the week, The Three Perfumes from 1912 by Margaret MacDonald Macintosh. So if you're at home, chilling, sitting around, wherever you are, going about your day, if you have access to a phone, maybe you're on a walk, maybe now's the time to sit on a bench and have a little look at the artwork on your phone. Um, If not, then maybe find it later and it'll make a little bit more sense but it'd be fabulous if you could maybe find the picture and then uh, have a look whilst I guide you through the image. So, The Three Perfumes, 1912, Margaret MacDonald Macintosh. Here we go. As ephemeral as fragrance, this image of The Three Perfumes comes into focus like an ethereal vision. Dressed in flowing, heavily patterned, dual-tone mantles, exquisitely adorned with roses and lotus-like blossoms, three maidens cluster around a fragrant white lily as blue and pink droplets of perfume rain down from them. A rhapsody of fleeting beauty. The maidens are elongated through a variety of sinuous and flowing lines. The use of vellum here has created a ghostly image of translucency. The work's fragility makes it seem as though it were as brittle as an eggshell. The colours blue and red bleed into one another, creating a variety of pink and purple hues that form a cloud of gossamer. The work appeals to sight and smell. It's as if perfume is wheezing out from the vellum itself. And that was a description of the three perfumes from 1912, Margaret MacDonald Macintosh, the artwork of the week.
And that was Saturday by Electroline, a fabulous song by a fabulous band. But on that note, we have now finished with the artwork of the week. Um, I hope you all enjoyed delving into early 20th century Glasgow with Margaret MacDonald Macintosh and Three Perfumes from 1912. But now it's time for our three-in-one story through song extravaganza. <laughs> Yes, it's that time of the day where we start to talk about music a little bit more. So this is the three-in-one story through song extravaganza. I'm now going to play three songs back-to-back. Perfect time for you to take five, maybe make yourself a cup of tea, get a snack, um, relax, and whilst you're listening in, um, I want you all at home to try and guess uh, what connects these three songs? So each of these songs could be connected either through place or time period. It could be a development of a musical movement or a development of an art movement. It could be a person. It could be. It could be anything. Something is linking these three songs, and I want you to try and guess. Um, I'm quite excited about this one. So yeah, without further ado, let's begin the three in one. Sorry, three song extravaganza. It is ten minutes. Past three. It's Sunday the 5th of March and here we go. This is the first song.
but it's only days. So I'll meet you at the cemetery gates. Keats and Yates are on your side. I dread it's sunny days. So I'll meet you at the cemetery gates. Keats and Yates are on your side. Go inside and we gravely read the stones All those people, all those lives, where are they now? With loves and hates and passions just like mine They were born and then they lived and then they died Seems so unfair, I want to cry You sir, throws the sun down, salutation to the dawn And you claim these words as your own I've read well and I've heard them said A hundred times, maybe less, maybe more If you must write pros and points The words you use should be around Don't plagiarize or take on loan There's always someone somewhere With a big nose who knows And trips you up and laughs when you fall He'll trip you up and laugh when you fall Some dizzy horror, 1804 I dread it's sunny day, so let's go Where we're happy and I'll meet you at the cemetery gates Oh, Keats and Yates are on your side I dread it's sunny day, so let's go Where we're wanted and I'll meet you at the cemetery gates Keats and Yates are on your side But you lose, cause we're the love of wide is up
Concludes um, our three-in-one story through song extravaganza. Yes. So when you were listening, what are you thinking? What do you think has connected these three songs? Yeah. Any ideas? Anyone? No. Well, let me tell you. So um, the first song was Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds. Um, ain't been to no music school from 1977. So this week we have transported ourselves to mid 1970s to early 1980s Manchester. <clears throat> this band originally went under the name of Wild Ram before Morrissey from the Smiths joined. Um, this band was a very volatile group and they began to argue about money and uh, this was a factor which led to Garrity and guitarist Vincent Riley walking away from the band and now with the future looking bleak they needed a new vocalist. So this is where Morrissey comes in. Stephen Morrissey from the Smiths um, joins the band and this is before the Smiths is formed. This is when Morrissey was actually working as a music journalist and he was um, not really... <laughs> not really in the game, not really in the music scene, so to speak. So he joins this band, um, but this was a punk band and Morrissey was actually quite embarrassed by being in this band. His punk background seems to be a source of shame and one which he has actually continued to deny over the years rather than admit and talk freely about. So that's Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds. The next song was, of course, Cemetery Gates by the Smiths. So that's a little link there. Morrissey's first band, now he's in the Smiths. And this is a song which is all about his friend and lifelong, lifelong close friend, Linda Sterling. Linda Sterling was the inspiration for this song, uh, Cemetery Gates, um, which was from the Queen is Dead album, 1986. And um, Sterling was a lifelong friend and they met in a Sex Pistols soundcheck in Manchester in 1976 
and they are still friends to this, to this day. And uh, Linda Sterling, not only is she a musician, but she is also an incredible artist. And yeah, that's a little clue. That final song was Linda Sterling's band, Box, and her band, Ludus. Um, from their 1981 cassette titled Pickpocket. Um, They are so cool. They are a British post-bunk band formed in Manchester in 1978, and it features Linda Sterling, um, and they played sort of jazz, avant-garde, punk-oriented material, and uh, the band very, very much influenced Morrissey and later The Smiths. And it's um, still to this day one of the group's most vocal fans. So there we go. Um, Manchester, 1970s, 1980s, Morrissey, Linda Sterling, and Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds. There we have it. But now it's time to delve into the Arts Hub Bulletin. Yes. So this week on the Arts Hub Bulletin, we're going to talk a bit about an exhibition which I went to, which is going on in Edinburgh, which I am going to encourage all of you to go and visit. And also we're going to talk about the an update on the Ukraine murals which have been popped around um, Ukraine, which have now been installed and protected by high-tech security systems. And this brings up a lot of conversation about the importance of preserving art and history. Um, and then we'll also be discussing um, the Jeff Koons incident um, with the balloon dog, which smashed. Um, yeah, who, I don't know what I think about that, but it's, it's definitely a story. Um, so here we go. Before we start talking about the Arts Hub Bulletin, here's another song. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this year's Bumble Bumble goes to the Brian Jones Day Massacre and the Marijuana Hip Waxing Spanish Beef. Thank you. 
Ashby by the Brian Jonestown Massacre. So let's talk a bit about what's happening in Edinburgh and the arts scene here. Well, I went to a very interesting um, exhibition last Monday called Knitwear Chanel to Westwood. And I thought I'd give it a look because I'm I I've done the odd bit of knitting, but I'm not, you know, a knitting a knitting fanatic. But I thought it'd be interesting to see the history of wool and I obviously saw that Westwood was there, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wanna check that out. But it um it was a really I mean the the venue was super was really nice, Dave Cott Studios. It was a really sweet place and um it it wasn't a huge exhibition, I'm gonna be honest about that. I I thought it'd maybe be a bit bigger, but the the art and the the clothes and things they did have in there were really interesting and it took you through chronological order through the history of knitting and knitwear and it was almost like walking through a time capsule i really loved looking at the history of um knitting especially when you think back and like they used knitting for everything back in the day they used it for swimwear and they used it for just that's that's the main source of clothing people had so it was really interesting to see the history of it all, but my I'm going to just talk about my favourite standout things that were in the exhibition without giving too much away. Um, so my favourite, one of my favourite things to look at was the, the Fair Isle Knits, which is a Scottish tradition. Um, and I found it quite interesting how these Fair Isle Knits, they, were, they are very cute little colourful sweaters um, from the Fair Isle, an island just um, in Scotland off... In, off the coast of Scotland and it became popularised because the the island gifted a gifted a fair a fair, a fair isle knit to um, King Edward um, the Duke of Windsor former King Edward in, and this was in 1922 so he um was in St Andrews uh, playing some golf and he was gifted a Fair Isle sweater and the fashionable Duke's satirical style led to an enormous demand for Fair Isle sweaters so of course if you know if an aristocrat wears a Fair Isle knit of course that's going to spread like wildfire so it became um a huge there was a huge increase in the production of the hand knitted garments and of course back then it was all hand handmade so the pharaoh had a high demand and um the classic patterned um socks and stockings and gloves were also made uh, made and sold throughout the uk but and they were worn by women and men on the island and um usually what they would do is they would sell um, there was a fishing island, the Farrell, they do fishing and knitting was just a part of uh, a little bit of extra income. But it was great because the Duke of Windsor, King Edward, wore this Farrell sweater and it became super popular. So they had, they managed to make quite a lot of money and sell loads of these really iconic Farrell sweaters. And um, it was a big trend in the 1930s. And then companies such as Bestway produced patterns um, like the old guest creator Cleo used for her first hand knit in 1963. So it became not just a trend in general, but a trend within the fashion world. And it was uh, reused and the motif came up again and again throughout the history of fashion. And I thought that was quite sweet because just a little modest fishing island with their own traditional sweater becomes 
an international trend. It's quite nice. So that was one of my favorite things in the exhibition. Yeah, the Fair Isle, it comes as a tiny island off the coast of Scotland, the West Coast. Oh, mm. yeah, the coast of Scotland. And um, it's um, history within the fashion, oh, it's place within the, the history of fashion is um, is is this little sweater. Um, and it was the 1920s that it started getting big. And it was, he was photographed wearing it while playing golf. So that's how the international trend began. Yeah. And it actually became quite a big trend again in the 1970s. So this trend picked up and it was like a retro revival. So yeah, you can, if you think in history in 1970s, they did like their sweaters. Um, for sure. And another thing which I really loved within the exhibition was they discussed the make, do and mend movement that was going on in World War Two. And I love the history of the two world wars. I think it's fascinating and particularly, yeah, make, do and mend where you are forced to be creative because you haven't got the means to buy new clothes. So the make, do and mend um, section I found particularly awesome because what people would do is they would unravel old jumpers so that they had the the wool. So they'd unravel them, unravel them if they had holes in, and then re and then use the the wool to to re knit something new. And because they didn't really have much choice of color, they'd obviously maybe have a random green jumper they unravel, and then a random pink one, a random blue one. So they'd use all these random colors to then make a new jumper, and then the jumper would end up being usually really beautiful and colorful because they'd have to, they've had to use multiple colors and if in this um section of the exhibition you see these gorgeous rainbow colorful knits and cardigans jumpers you name it and they've all been just beautifully made with all these colors from unraveling whatever they could find and i just think that's it just shows the creativity which goes into these hard times of hardship um, with all these clothing rations and uh, women just really had to find creative ways of recycling garments and um, yeah this unraveling of old sweaters was a massive part of it yeah and there was also so patterns were produced by the government to promote this and it was um, uh, the CC41 mark designated the restricted use of materials for new utility clothing and can be seen on these labels of garments produced at this time. So there was a huge uh, rationing going on and it really forced people to get really creative. So that was another element of the exhibition, which I thought was really charming. Um, and then this isn't, this wasn't necessarily part of the exhibition, but I, there was one piece, because it goes all the way up to present day, and there was one piece that I thought was really cool and it was um, the a 1960s space age style sweater. And then I started doing some research on 1960s space age fashion, and it's actually insane. And if you're into aliens and space age things, I definitely recommend looking at 1960s space age fashion, because that is, that is a cool scene that was going on there. But they have um, space age styling very often used wool and knitting because of the stretch that you get from those materials which help to define a more streamlined look so it's all about things hugging the body maybe having a hood that's like stuck to your head um, to make you look a bit like an alien or an extraterrestrial so yeah those are my um, 
those are my three favorite things about the exhibition but it's going on it's if you're a student it's uh half price so yeah not bad uh dave Cott studio is a really sweet little place and it's very near campus so if you're a student and you think ah i've got a few free hours i wouldn't mind doing something a bit different yeah why not it was very nice little and if you're into history particularly i'd say this was a really nice exhibition because you look at um it's it's very focused on like the history of knitting and also the context so yeah if that sounds like something that would tickle your pickle definitely go check it out the underground youth no oh sometimes sorry <laughs> i don't know what that was that's the music video yeah morning sun by the underground youth so we're in the arts hub bulletin and uh we've just discussed an exhibition going on in edinburgh called knitwear chanel to westwood dovecourt studios really cute little place and yeah but now we're gonna stretch outside of the local news and something quite fascinating has happened um, in regards to Ukraine and the situation going on there and the murals which Banksy had placed around 
Kiev and also outside Kiev as well in suburbs. Well, <clears throat> these murals have actually been targeted by the Russians and also by um, of people who want to vandalize it and um, maybe spray paint over them and things like that. So the one with the woman with the gas mask, that was targeted quite a few times. So it's been... Uh, it's happened now that they are, are being protected by very, very high-tech security systems. And this really brings up questions on the importance of preserving art, um, even if it's in a war-torn area or going in, um, in all of the, from, yeah, from war-torn areas, and the importance of protecting art as a means to protect history as well and uh, keep, keep history um, remembered and things. So I've, I thought this was quite interesting. The the systems that have been in place to protect these murals, um, they're called IJAX systems. Um, I think that's the company, IJAX systems, and they deployed £13,000 worth or $13,000 worth of security and monitoring apparatuses. Um, and this is at four of Banksy's murals, so not all of them, and they are in and around Kiev. And the company has installed the systems, which include shockproof glass, alarms, um, and this has all happened after an attempt last December to steal a mural depicting the one with the woman in the gas mask in uh, Hostomel, uh, a Kiev suburb that was central to Stavenov Russian forces in the first days of the, inva- in the, uh, of the invasion. But um, Banksy's works have cultural and historical value for the country as a reminder that light will win over darkness. And it's really important to to, um, resist possible vandalism attempts that have already happened. Um, If you think about these artworks, they're bringing a lot of hope to, to people within Kiev and in Ukraine at the moment, but also you can see how there would be a lot of motivation to destroy them or steal them because there also would be a worth a hell of a lot if people managed to steal them. And it really shows just the importance of preserving art. And even though it was $13,000 of security equipment, that, has, that is the price it's paying to protect these works. There's nothing, I mean, history is invaluable. So... Yeah, and um, these objects, these art objects are, they're war artifacts that need to be preserved for Ukrainians. It's now more than, it's, it, it extends beyond art at this point when it comes to these murals, I think. It's very much uh, sort of evidence of history. Um, And uh, here's a little quote. The works are now protected against potential vandalism and weather conditions. They've got round-the-clock monitoring, rapid response to security company. And um, until delivered to the museum, the statement adds, although it does not specify which museum, they will be protected. So they have the idea of moving them to a museum um, straight away. Um, whether that would be an easy task or an easy thing to do, I don't think so, um, as they are attached to large buildings and, and things and walls, really large walls. But uh, for now, they are being protected by this really high-tech apparatus. And I think it's just amazing that this is being done, really. It's, 
It's fabulous. I mean, they're really being um, preserved. Because imagine in the future, within in a hundred years' time, these, if they are in museums, I mean, these are raw evidence of, of the horrific happenings that are going on there. And um, I think it's just incredible that, that Banksy did this in the first place. It's just such a um, bold move. And yeah, I think it's really brought so much hope and um, and uh, mot- uh, vigor and energy to to Ukrainians and um, yeah it's a it's a historic thing a historic moment and I'm, I'm very happy it's being preserved and being prior- prioritized as well um, yeah so that's that's that <laughs>
by Bjork, following on our conversation on the Ukraine murals by Banksy, which have now been protected by high-tech security systems. So, I now want to have a little brief discussion on Jeff Koons. So, if you're into arts news, I'm sure you've all heard of the incident in Miami where an iconic balloon dog smashed to pieces when a visitor knocked it over. So, Jeff Koons... The iconic pop artist um, who creates these kitsch little uh, balloon-esque sub, um, sculptures. Um, so he um, he makes these balloon dogs, and they sell for ten. Over the years, they've sold for tens of millions of pounds. And in Miami, this happened. I th- oh, I think it was the nineteenth of February when this happened. Um, one was smashed by a visitor. So art lovers in Miami looked in horror when a collector knocked over a piece that was £34,870. And um, this is, yeah, by Jeff Coons, and it was knocked and smashed to thousands of little pieces. Um, She tapped it with her finger, witnesses had said, um, and it has been swept into dustpans by gallery staff. And now I suppose it's not worth an awful lot. Um, the accident happened during the exclusive VIP-only opening night of Art Wynwood, a contemporary art fair held annually in Miami, Florida. Um, local artist Stephen Gamson told the Miami Herald he was admiring the sculpture when an older woman tapped it, knocking it off its pedestal. Um, at first, he says that he thought it was a performance piece, um, but then he suddenly realised it was actually an accident. And when it fell... Um, he says it was like a car accident which drew a crowd to a highway so everyone was in awe of what had just happened it was so shocking um luckily the woman had uh um oh luckily for the woman actually the piece is covered by insurance so there is no issues there but um yeah it was people i think enjoyed the they said it was an event and it was something that happened and it kind of made the exhibition more exciting um even though uh you know it's not ideal that someone breaks some artwork but also jeff coons's artwork it's made i mean he probably has hundreds of other balloon dogs lying around made by his um staff who make them for him and uh, I don't know if, how much of a tragedy it really is, but then again, uh, the occurrence of the, the incident of it smashing to the ground, I think, made people excited and it made it, it almost, I think, in a way, this could make Jeff Koons's art go up in value because people are actually talking about him a little bit more than usual. Um, so this could be working in his favour. Um, yeah, but the woman who knocked it over was a collector, so she was, you know, a prestigious art collector as well, um, and she hasn't been named, but, yeah, apparently, um, here's a quote, uh, life just stopped for 15 minutes with everyone around, um, so it was quite a big deal, um, and the woman was very, very sorry, and just wanted to disappear, but it's insured it's all okay and she hasn't been named so there is no public disgrace going on there but um it was okay so here we go the sculpture was part of a limited edition which was 799 and now it's 798 so there was like over 700 nearly 800 of these balloon creatures 
So it's not as though it was like a, you know, the Mona Lisa, one and only. There were several um, just like it. So it wasn't necessarily a tragedy. I think it might, I think, I think it's going to make his artwork actually go up in value because people are really talking about him. But people were actually also trying to buy the pieces that had been shattered. Um, uh, Mr. Gamson, so he's an art dealer, he offered to buy it there and then because he said that it was just a cool story and it's maybe something could happen there. Maybe he could sell it, sell the story, the, the context of the art and everything. So we'll see. Maybe it will go up for auction, the smashed balloon dog. Um, yeah, who knows? But some of the balloon dogs are kind of small. Some are pretty big. They're very iconic, iconic pop art. Um, and they have been graced around galleries around the world um, for, for many, many years now. But uh, one has now smashed. Um, but he literally has sold... I mean, he, his rabbit sculpture from 2019 sold for £71 million, and that is the highest sale price ever for a living artist. So he is raking it in. So I'm not sure how sorry I feel for him, but I, 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 I have a feeling that his artwork's now going to just boom in value. And yeah, that's just the way of the art world, buying and selling, trends, all that. But I thought it was quite, quite entertaining if I'm honest
empty glasses the amps so we're reaching towards the end of the show if you have tuned in at all thanks so much for listening it's been the arts hub show and we have done we've covered a lot of ground we've entered all sorts of different realms um we spoke about uh margaret mcdonald mcintosh and her beautiful artwork the three perfumes from 1912 and we had our three-in-one story through song extravaganza which transported us to 1970s 1980s manchester the punk scene morrissey linda sterling and the nosebleeds and then we've also had a chat about a local exhibition going on in Edinburgh, Knitwear Chanel to Westward in Dovecourt Studios, as well as the Ukraine murals which have now been protected by high-tech security systems, and also as we've just spoken about Jeff Coons and his balloon dog sculpture in Miami which has been smashed to lots of pieces. So... hope everyone has had a fabulous day Uh, spring is here everything's joyous and i will be back next week with another artwork of the week and a little bit more of arts news and local arts happenings as well as international happenings um with of course a playlist more eclectic than ever so stay tuned thanks so much for listening this has been the arts hub show